This year, we're going to be studying the gospel according to Luke. And it is the most important story, historical account, fact, than anything else in the world. Nothing else compares to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing else matters in the world. So let's just think about that for a minute. Just humor me. If this event of Jesus being born in 2023 or in 20, we'll go, you know, 20 years ago, in, you know, the century, and he, he lived here amongst us and stuff, he died and rose and everything, do you honestly think that it would be recorded fairly in today's media? I mean, if you really think about that, that that's, that's an issue. And it's not just an issue for today, it was an issue back then also. Because Satan did not want any of this out of the, out of the, hat of, the cat out of the bag. None of it. Nip it in the bud. Even if it did happen, he didn't want it recorded. He didn't want anybody to know about it. Today, he doesn't want us telling anybody about it. Right? So it carries on. The most important event, the only thing that matters in life to get the truth out um, was pretty much against a lot of opposition. So, as we look at Luke, I want us to consider that, especially this first part, on what Luke went through in order to get this recorded. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to Luke also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's a lot of stuff in there. But it's going to give us a nice introduction to what this is about. The whole purpose of Luke writing his account of the gospel, uh, writing his account of the life of Christ, is to, so his friend Theophilus, can know how God purposed to save lost sinners from eternal hell. God's purpose and how it unfolded in his saving of lost sinners from damnation for the rest of their life. Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. This truly is the greatest story ever told. Um, Nothing else compares to it in the historical count ever, and never, nothing else will ever be more important to us as people, to God, to Christ, to the church. So, Luke says that he was moved by the Spirit to compile a narrative of these things. Other people have compiled a narrative. Matthew and Mark had already written their accounts of the gospel. But, but Luke was moved to then go ahead and have eyewitnesses, interview people, ministers of the word, and to compile this so his friend can have an accurate understanding of the truth. 
So, who did he interview? Going back then, during Luke's time, who would he interview? Well, Matthew and Mark had written their Gospels. The apostles were around. Uh, Luke hung out with Paul a lot. So he interviewed a lot of these apostles, a lot of these men that were right inside the Christ's inner circle. He probably interviewed Mary. What was it like growing up with Mary? What are the things that you heard? Because you were getting all these stories and all these experiences from these people that were around Christ. We look, if we go over to Acts 1, the first three verses of that, which Paul also wrote, Acts, he makes this reference back to Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, which is the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had been given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So during that time, there were probably about, well, if you go over to Acts 1, go over to verse 15, we find out the company of persons who were there were about 120. 120 people Jesus ministered to and gave instructions to about the coming kingdom before he ascended. So this is another pool of people that, that, Paul, that Luke could um, interview and, and, and get their accounts from, and he's recording all this stuff. And then if we go to 1 Corinthians 15, 6, there's 500 people who gathered in Galilee after he ascended. So here we have many, many, many people that were eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life that Paul, that, I'm gonna, I hope I don't do that all year, that Luke had access to interview and to, to, to hear their first hound of accounts of that. Sounds like a pretty easy, he was a busy guy doing all this stuff, but we just talked about the opposition that's out there. So the opposition to get the truth out, I don't even know if we can, because we see the opposition today about getting the truth out, don't we? Censorship, don't do that, whatever, get arrested. I mean, there's a ton of stuff out there that's hindering uh, people's ability to speak the truth. So to record this historical moment Satan was on his game big time trying to hinder this about to happen also. He purposely made things confusing. He purposely tried to trip people up. He probably inserted different things in there. Let's use some examples. We've got some new vocabulary in today's language. We have something now called misinformation. I never heard of misinformation before. Information was information, but now we have misinformation which is false or inaccurate information, getting the facts wrong. There's people out there that like to use misinformation to get the facts wrong. We could have put that out there today. We could have said, we're not meeting at this church, we're meeting at another church. <laughs> misinformation, right? A little bit of an evil account. Another word we have in today's language is disinformation. That is false information, which is deliberately intended to mislead, intentionally misstating the facts. That's a nice way to say lying, isn't it? We have a word for that, lying. And who's the father of lies? 
Satan. So he was all on board during Luke's time to, to convolute things, to twist things, to have misinformation and disinformation about. It was interesting. I, just a side note, I also ran in another one as I was studying this. It's called malinformation. Mal. Anybody heard of malinformation? Yeah. Malinformation is truth used to inflict harm on a person. Like doxing. If you know what doxing is, when you get on the internet and you get all your information, your social security number and where you live and your phone number, and they put it out to the whole world so the whole world knows they can come and egg your house or whatever like that, that's doxing. So that's using truth to harm somebody. Anyways, all these tactics that are out there just to kind of mess up truth. So this was the world that Luke was writing the, his account of Jesus' life in back then. It wasn't just, we get this and it's a beautiful book and we're reading it and everything. But to get an idea of the opposition that was happening back then, it helps us understand the opposition we get today shouldn't hinder us. Because the Holy Spirit blew Luke through all that, got him the right information, weeded through all the lies that were out there, and he had compiled this beautiful book here that we're going to study this year. This book is not just a biography of Jesus' life. We're just not going to flip through and say, these, things have, these are factual things are him. Because it is written by the Spirit of God, it is, it is God's word. It's an account of what God accomplished through Jesus in people's lives. So yeah, we're going to have a lot of facts in there and stuff. There's, the biography is going to be in there, but it also has what God accomplished in people's lives through knowing Jesus. Miracles. Miracles that Christ did to prove he was the Son of God, is the Son of God. These miracles, being around Jesus, believing in him being the Son of God, changed people's lives. Walking with Jesus, being there, hearing about him, just living during that time with all the excitement that was going on about him. Um, it, was just a, it was just ecstatic, I'm sure. But then we had your charlatans. We had your people in there trying to twist the truth and stuff. But the ones that could break through and really grab hold of the truth, it changed their lives. Isaiah talks about how people walking in darkness have seen a great light. All of a sudden there was hope on the horizon. There was something new and dynamic happening in this world. I mean, there was just a, especially to the Gentiles, there was like nothing. It's just that we live, we die, whatever, you know. We hope we get along okay, hope it rains enough so we have enough food, whatever. We hope the Romans aren't so mad at us or whatever. Um, we hope we don't break our leg because it's hard to mend it. You know, there's so much going on in that society. And all of a sudden, there was this man that was doing these things that was so different about him that he was speaking truth and hope. And people's lives were changed. I bet you most of us in here have run into somebody that wasn't a believer. And then after they became a believer... Isn't it fun to watch them? <laughs> I thought I brought my water up here. Ah, Barb, my water is right there. Um, it's, it truly is a life-changing thing, isn't it? It's life-changing. Thank you, sweetheart. I just love you. Wet my whistle. 
So Luke wrote about how people's lives were changed from knowing Jesus Christ. He also, in his uh, gospel, it's an account of hope. Hope. If believing this amazing man was God, then if he is God, that's pretty awesome. But if he is, and I think he is, then the things he's saying, and if God is not a liar, God can't lie, then the things he's saying are true. And when he starts to talk about this new kingdom and, and doing things in a loving way and loving your enemies and it's like turning things inside out and what a new way to look at life. What a, what a, 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 a whole philosophy that's coming into play. There's hope. The burden has been lifted to find out that, that Jesus is truly the Son of God, the only way back to God, believing in him and why he came, understanding that and grasping that truth. There's just not hope, but there becomes peace with God and peace with the Creator. This was a whole new world that opened up in this first uh, century church. So there was a hope. Luke's Gospel is also an account written to a beloved friend. And notice it's important. Who you're writing something to matters, isn't it? If I'm going to write out directions on how to, I don't know, water my plants at home when I'm gone, when I go on vacation or whatever, and I have to leave this extension thing on how to do the horses and how to do all this stuff, I mean this page on how to take care of my farm when I'm gone. If I'm writing it to... Ezra, my five-year-old, <laughs> it's going to be very simplistic, um, and I might not give all the details because a lot of it she won't be able to do, um, but if I'm writing it to someone who's never had horses or taken care of a farm, there's going to be a lot more detail. If I'm writing it to somebody who um, has a farm and knows about horses and been to my farm and knows my horses, it's going to be minimal. So the audience that Luke was writing to was his friend, his Gentile friend, Theophilus, his beloved friend, someone that he says he wants him to know with certainty the things that you've been taught. There was a heartfelt desire for Luke to have his friend grasp the truth about Jesus Christ. Do we have people in our lives like that that we want to share that with? A heartfelt, I really want you to know the truth. Um, I'm going to go to great extremes to explain it to you and to help you to understand it because we have a heart for the lost. I think we've lost some of that. I mean, I think the unbelievers in the world kind of irritate us or they get in our way or we just blow them off or whatever. Um, to have more of a... a, a a heart to get the truth out there to people who don't know it or don't understand it. So the love and compassion of God filtered through Luke by the Holy Spirit to reach mankind. And a, a book that was written to one individual is now sitting before us this year, going to be studied by us. That's a wonderful thing. So let's take a look at who, who, is, who was Luke. Who was Luke? Well, in today's term, we might give him the title investigative journalist, right? That's kind of a thing to be, an investigative journalist, to go out there and get the facts and everything and search around and weed through it. Um, and an honest journalist would, would want to get to the facts and do all their checking and everything. 
Um, so he was that. He was a Gentile. Now, it's not going to be plain that he was a Gentile. If you go through Acts, there's a, a place in Acts that talks about a group of Paul's followers or friends that were, um, that were uncircumcised, and he's in that group. So we, we have a fair understanding that Luke was a Gentile. He was a friend and traveling companion of Paul. He wrote Acts. A lot of that was hanging out with Paul. He would use the word we many times when he was with Paul. And he was also referred to in Scripture as being a medical doctor or someone who knew about medicine was helping. Um, so, so he had a wisdom about and a desire to help and heal people, understand how the physical body works, um, and understanding the science in, in some ways and different medicines. So he had that knowledge. He had a heart for people. Luke wrote uh, his gospel here. And it is the longest book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. It's the longest book. It has the most pages. You take the book of Luke that... The Gospel of Luke that he wrote, and you combine it with the Gospel with Acts, which he also wrote, and together both of those books um, make up more than a fourth of the New Testament. So Luke wrote more than Paul wrote. When I found that out, I was kind of amazed at that because Paul wrote a lot, little letters, but the bulk of it Luke wrote by far more. Luke's uh, writings um, in Acts and his gospel, or, or I'm sorry, just in, um, yeah, both of those books together, cover over 60 years from John the Baptist's birth all the way to Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So he covers a lot of ground. He did a lot of interviewing. He collected a lot of information. He filtered through a lot of stuff. Um, if we compare the four gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find out that Luke's gospel is the longest, most thorough, and most complete. There's probably 40% more in Luke's gospel that he includes that is not included in the other gospels. So if we think about it, if we want to study Jesus' life, Luke might be a good pick because we're going to get a broader, thorough, more thorough understanding of Jesus and the times that he lived in and what he did and how he affected people in studying his, his gospel. He says that he, um, in the first few verses here, he felt the need to write an orderly account. He wanted to write an orderly account. Strictly chronological, a logical account aimed to persuade the reader. What confuses us more, I don't know if it's just me or women in general, but actually, I'm not going to say that. I think men are more illogical like this. Maybe I'll stay off the sexes. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> I get myself in trouble. This happened, and this happened, and this happened. If we say this was happening, oh, and then by the way, over here, this was going over there, we get a little confused in it. And it's like, what's, what's happening? We want to quit, whatever. You know, we have to figure it out. Luke draws it out for us. We don't have to figure it out. He's chronological. It's an accurate account on, on, on what was going on at this time, on the life of Christ. 
One thing that I re- uh, ran across as I was studying about Luke was that um, back at when they were canonizing and finding out, okay, is this a legitimate writing? Luke's writings, the early church um, leaders and scholars never questioned the authenticity of Luke's writing. Never came under question because it was so accurate, so right to the point, right to the truth, made sense that you couldn't, you know, it was bulletproof, really. You couldn't tear it apart. Although today's media might try to tear it apart, right? And I'm sure they didn't back then. But it wasn't questioned at the time. So, Luke's writings, he focused on his friend. And his friend was was not a, a Jew. His friend was a Gentile. So his focus in writing, is a, it's a gospel that's pretty much written to the Gentiles. Where Matthew's written to the Jews, um, you know, they each have their own little thing. Um, John was a Jew, too. There's different perspective on it, Mark. Um, but Luke's specific was written to Gentile believers who didn't have the history of Israel and the Old Testament writings and stuff. Wanting to make it clear that Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation is available to all. We have equality here. That's a word we like today, don't we? Equality. It's not just for, you know, one group of people. Jesus Christ and salvation is available to everybody. Luke 24, 47, when we get there, it says this, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The cross is a focal point. The cross and the journey to the cross and the whole thing about the death of Christ and why he came takes up more than half of the book of Luke. It begins about a third of the way through in chapter 9 and moves on through to the end of chapter 23. We have a little bit of stuff. The first chapter is talking about what he's doing in Jerusalem and then we journey to the cross. We, tur- we journey to the cross. So, it's, it's truly an amazing story that matters. The, and, I, and I hate to say story because it's not just a story. It's not made up. It is, it is fact. It's historical fact. And it's, a, it's a, a story. It's facts that need to be told and retold accurately. And it needs to be retold often, too. All right. I'm going to wrap up with just telling you about two major themes then in Luke um, that we're going to take a look at this year. One major theme is the Son of Man, that title that Christ has, highly exalted title. The second major theme is prayer. And if you think about that, it really makes sense that those two are the major themes. So let's just take the Son of Man first. Jesus is the Son of Man. He has many titles, but this title, Son of Man, is by far the most highly exalted title that he has. It is his claim to divine authority. 
It is his claim in, in, of deity. It is a, his, his claim of dominion over all. The first place in scripture where the title Son of Man is used is in Daniel 7, verse 13, says, Daniel's recording his night visions, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Let me get, set the stage here. Paul, uh, Paul, Paul, I got Paul on my mind, don't I? <laughs> Daniel is seeing the vision and he's recording it. And he's seeing the, the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And he is there on the clouds and he comes to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. And he was presented before him. So he comes in before his father. And then the Ancient of Days, or God the Father, gives him dominion and gives him glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Christ is getting his authority. He's getting his um, domain of everything that he is over. His domain... um, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the first time Son of Man is referenced. Now, it also, just the word Son of Man, it's divinity and it's humanity coming together. Christ is all God, 100%. Christ is 100% human. Don't ask me to explain it. It's one of those things that no one else is like it except Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has this character to him, that has this, that is who he is. He's the bridge. He's the only bridge between God, divine, and mankind, humanity. That's it. No other way. No other door. No other attempt no one else can do that the son of man's title only belongs to jesus christ because he is a bridge there's a poster out there that i almost checked out to see if you had this poster a poster of um a great uh divide um i'll put you guys in the pagan world so there's all the world over there and it's burning and it's on fire and there's riots and you know whatever happened and like that and there's a big gully just a big hole there and then over here where the cross is there's heaven and then there's that bridge that looks like a cross that's fallen down have you seen that kind of thing it's really cool um um it's fallen down the cross has fallen down and it's a bridge that people over there can cross over and come over to where heaven is and god and holiness and that cross represents the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and having a new life through him. It's a beautiful picture of the Son of Man. He's the only way. He's the only way back to God for us to have a relationship, to us to be even in the presence of a holy God. It has to be through the righteousness of Christ taking on his identity. So Jesus identifies himself as this bridge to God. 
it's from the lips of Christ that the Son of Man is mentioned more times than any other when it's, uh, when it's referenced in the, in the New Testament here. Just take a look at that. In Matthew, Jesus is self-proclaiming he's the Son of Man 32 times. In Mark, Jesus is self-proclaiming he is the Son of Man 15 times. In John, Jesus self-proclaims he's the Son of Man 12 times. And in Luke, Jesus self-proclaims he's the Son of Man 26 times. These are from our Savior's lips. He is the Son of Man. No one else has that title. No one else is that bridged back to God. There are a few, three or four, that the Son of Man is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's not spoken by Christ. Acts 7.56, Stephen, when he was being stoned, he looked up and he saw what? The Son of Man standing up there. It's one time. In John 12.34, there's a crowd of people that are around Jesus and they're asking him questions and they ask him a question. Is it true that the Son of Man has to be lifted up? So it's off of just regular people's lift asking about the Son of Man. Hebrews 2.6 refers to the Son of Man as the founder of salvation. Now we know that we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it was a, somebody else. But from those lips, it re- makes a reference to Son of Man as the founder of salvation. Then we go into Revelation, and there's two places where the Son of Man is mentioned, but it's not from the lips of Christ. Revelation 1.13 Standing amongst the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. And then in Revelation 14, 14, the Son of Man was going to harvest the earth. So, altogether, it's like 94 times the Son of Man is mentioned in the New Testament. And by far, most of them are Jesus Christ saying, He is the Son of Man. Because no one else can identify that. No one else can... Can, can claim that. The Son of Man provides us access to the throne room of God. Because there's that bridge, because through Christ we have access to the Son of Man, the, the curtain temples were rent when Christ, uh, you know, was crucified and ascended, whatever, they were rent. We were, had access to the Holy of Holies through Christ. That, just thinking about that is, is amazing. Um, And that opens it up to the second theme that's important here is prayer. We've got to get a grip on how important prayer is. Prayer is so so important. In Luke, he makes it important on how he makes prayer important. Luke will record Jesus praying more times, a few more times than the other Gospels. As a matter of fact, there's three specific, pretty important experiences in Jesus' life, Peter's life, where he prayed, but Luke was the only one that mentioned that he was praying. In Jesus' baptism, and you guys can look this up if you want to later, Matthew 3, 16 to 17, in Matthew, he talks about the baptism of Jesus um, and doesn't say he's praying. But when we get to Luke 3, it says that in his baptism, Luke 3, 
21 to 23. Now, when all the peoples were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up. He was praying. Luke mentions that. And then we get over and we have the transfiguration. Mark talks about the transfiguration, but he doesn't mention anything about praying. But if we go to Luke 9, verse 28... Now about eight days after these sayings, he, told, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Luke mentions he was praying. The third time is Peter's denial. It's recorded in Matthew 26. It's recorded in Mark 14. It's recorded in John 13. But only in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to shift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. So Jesus made a really, really important point, or Luke made an important point of showing Jesus' praying. And Jesus prayed. Why would Jesus need to pray? Isn't he God? Doesn't he have a direct connection with God the Father? Why would he need to pray? And if he needed to pray, all the more we need to pray, right? So, why did he need to pray? Jesus, who was holy without sin, walked among us. Saw all the filth, all the stuff there is. I mean, I don't know. I remember two things are coming to mind right now. My kids were little. We lived in Southern California, and we were going to this mall. This is back in the 80s. I'm sure it's worse now had my young kids with me and stuff. We were at this mall in Southern California. All these kids, all these teenagers were there. And every, every other word out of their mouth was foul. I'm thinking, Ooh, don't talk to my, in front, I know, in front of my kids, it's like, Ugh, I don't want them exposed to this. This is a mall. It, but it really made an impact on me. Um, so we live in a world like that, and, and you know, I'm not by far not perfect, and, you know, I've slipped a couple words every now and then. I mean, I used to. I'm better about it now. But anyway, I'm just saying that Jesus, who never did, heard all that stuff. That must have been really a, a burden upon him. So to, because of the things in life, we... He go, went to prayer, to, to have a break, to, to get refocused with the Father, to, to be in a holy communion with God. Um, all the more we need to do that, a time of prayer. And not just our list of, you know, slot machine, this, 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 and here's our requests, but truly getting in there and talking to God and, and praising him and reflecting upon God and thanking him and, and making our requests known and just really envisioning or whatever you need to do to get in your prayer closet and just shut everything out but you and God is is reviving isn't it when that happens if you've experienced that kind of prayer the world could be crashing and it's like oh I need to pray about this and it's like you come out of it like a whole new insight on life you you got a handle on you got a grip on it so Jesus had a human side to him and he lived in a very perverted world like we do and so he would pray often i heard it said one time that the greatest sin that christians commit is the lack of prayer 
grapple with that one a minute. There's some truth to that, isn't it? The greatest sin we commit is our lack of prayer, trying to do it on our own. So it was like an escape. It was an escape from, we need a break here. Jesus went to prayer. What do people do today for a break? Well, we've got a lot of options out there, don't we? Satan's got them right there. I'll suggest this one to you, and I'll suggest this one to you. Hey, Al, Molly, let's go shopping, you know, whatever. (laughs) Or let's go do something. Or let's just, you know, things that we do as an escape or to get away from it all or whatever, seldom is it prayer. But I'm seeing in today's culture, and it's become a, now it's a mental diagnosis, um, our obsession and our addiction to internet, to gaming. People can get so caught up in that, it becomes their reality. It's their escape. They're doing that. They just, I got to say, I got, husband comes home from work, never really grew up, you know, so he goes in there and starts gaming. Come on, man, you're a grown man with kids. Why is your husband still going there and game? We got to fix this. Unplug. It's an escape. We go in there and we use that. Um, or just surfing. Or just this. When I caught Ezra doing that with my phone, I give me that. <laughs> She's going through the pictures like that? I'm like, stop, stop. But, but that's another way that people deal with tension in the world and bad things. They go to the Internet. They escape into that. And when that happens, all this around them is blocked out. Um, so a great world evangelist was asked one time, if you could live your life over again, would you change anything? And his answer was, I would spend more time in prayer. I would spend more time in prayer. Lots of times we just pray real quick. I got to get over. I got to wait. And it's not even. And we're not even really thinking about God, but we're just kind of. What's on my list? Or I checked the box. I prayed. But if I can challenge you and challenge myself this year, as we studied Luke and know that one of the themes is prayer in here, that we can really stop and pause and consider our prayer life. And one of the things that we can ask Him is to possibly just maybe God. Open my heart up more for a heart for the lost or a boldness to speak the truth about you or an opportunity to speak that I won't miss out on. This greatest story ever told. The life of Jesus is indeed the greatest story ever told. It's the only story that matters in life and nothing should hinder us from telling us. Do not comply if someone tells you you cannot talk about Jesus Christ here. Do not comply. Almighty God, we are, we are always caught up amazed at who you are and in contrast who we are and how we fall short. But we are eager to be here. You put a desire in our heart to study your word. You put a desire in our hearts to cut out this time in our lives to be here, to dig into your word, to fellowship with other people who just love you. And and we thank you for that. We, We thank you that you've given us this opportunity in this church with these people to do it. Help us to be good stewards of this time. Help us to just have our, the, the eyes of our hearts opened to what Luke has written about you, that we can have a more deeper love affair with you, Almighty God. And this we pray in your name. 
Amen.